Like Al said in his children's talk, there are some things that you'd be crazy to say no to. And um, I want to tell you a story about a nation who said no to a good idea. The nation was the nation of Switzerland, and in 1967, 65% of the world's watches came from Switzerland. So they are making over two-thirds of the world's watches, and they were without doubt the best watchmakers. So they had the market sewn up. You think of it, don't you? Watchmakers, the Swiss. But by 1980, that's just 13 years later, Switzerland had gone from 65% of the world's watches to 10% of the world's watches. And in those 13 years, 50,000 watchmakers in Switzerland lost their jobs. What was the reason for that change? The digital watch. But here's the tragedy. It was actually the Swiss who invented the quartz electronic movement for a watch. Yet when the Swiss researchers passed it on to their bosses in 1967, it was rejected as a bad idea. The new watches didn't have a spring, they didn't need bearings, they had no gears. This idea would never take off. And so, after rejecting the idea, the Swiss showcased their useless invention at the World Watch Congress. Seiko from Japan took one look and the rest is history. They thought it was a great idea. They jumped on board with the digital watch. And by 1980, Japan was the world's biggest suppliers of watches. There's some things in life that you'd be crazy to say no to. Jesus is one of them. And today we're looking at a nation, the nation of Israel, who said no to Jesus. The nation of Israel was so preoccupied with the old way of doing things, so preoccupied with the Old Testament and its rules, that they forgot the whole point of it all. See, the whole point of the Old Testament, the whole point of the law, was to, to point people to Jesus, to help them find forgiveness. And yet when the one who the law was pointing to came, they rejected him. But this section of Mark's Gospel that we're looking at today, it's not just about the Jewish leaders saying no to Jesus. It's also about God saying no to them. So... This part that we've just heard read is actually, I think, divided into two halves. The first half is about Israel rejecting Jesus. The second half is about Jesus rejecting them. And the, the middle point, the turning point, is chapter 3, verse 6. Have a look with me at chapter 3, verse 6 of Mark. Mark 3, 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. That verse is where things change. That is the climax, if you like, of the rejection of Jesus, but it's also the trigger for Jesus to announce his judgment on Israel. So let's look at each half. Firstly, Israel's rejection of Jesus. What we have here is a series of questions, four incidents, a series of questions from the religious leaders about the way that Jesus is doing things. Four different situations but the issue is the same in every one of them. You might have noticed it as it was read. Jesus simply does not fit into their old system. The first question is in Mark chapter 2, verse 16. If you come back there with me, we saw this one last week, didn't we? When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, 
saw Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. King Jesus is offering forgiveness of sins and people are coming to him to be forgiven, people who know they need to be forgiven. The Pharisees should have joined in the crowd. They should have come and asked Jesus for forgiveness. That's what Mark 1 was about right back at the start. John the Baptist came to the nation of Israel calling them to repent, to ask God for forgiveness. But here we are and the nation of Israel is not repenting. The Pharisees think they're good because they follow all the rules. They don't need to repent. And so they're just happy to sit and point the finger at bad people. Verse 16, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Their problem is their pride. They think they're good. And so rather than celebrating that forgiveness has arrived, they're getting upset with Jesus for mixing with bad people. They reject the forgiveness that Jesus offers. That's the first incident. The second one comes in verse 18. It's another question from the Pharisees or from actually from, um, doesn't say who it's from, but verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Fasting is going without food. It was something that happened a fair bit in the Old Testament. It was an expression of sadness and grief. So there's examples in the Old Testament where people fast when someone died to show their grief. Or you might fast as a sign of your sadness over your sin. In fact, in Leviticus 16, which, where God talks about the great day of atonement, when the whole nation of Israel, their sin would be forgiven, he commanded the entire nation of Israel to, to have a day of fasting. So important was the forgiveness of their sin. When we have a party, we eat lots of food, don't we? Food is like a sign of, of happiness and um, things are good. Fasting is the opposite. It's a sign of sadness. It's like a cry of help to God. Now, by Jesus' day, the Jews had become pretty regular at fasting. In fact, some of them were just fasting to show off how good and religious they were. You might remember the Pharisee in Luke's gospel who brags, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Jesus and his disciples, though, are not fasting. And that gets the good religious guys who are fasting a little bit upset. Maybe it makes a mockery of fasting. So they come to Jesus and they ask him, verse 18, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting but yours are not. Jesus answered them, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Fasting when Jesus is here is like being at a wedding with the bridegroom and not sharing in the wedding food. The wedding's meant to be a time of celebration, a time of eating. And Jesus reminds them the whole point of fasting was to be asking for God's forgiveness. And now the time that that forgiveness has arrived, Jesus is here, it's not a time to be sad, it's a time to be happy, it's a time to rejoice. There may be a sad time to come when Jesus dies, but that time is not now. But the religious people 
are too focused on the fasting to see that the real thing is here. This is perhaps like a bride going on a diet for three months before her wedding so she'll look good on the wedding day, but then she doesn't turn up to her own wedding because, well, there's food there and it might ruin her figure. It's just absurd. This is like training hard for a big football game, but then not turning up to the actual game because, well, you've just fallen in love with the training, so you go home for a jog. The Pharisees are so preoccupied with the rules, they've forgotten what the rules were pointing them to. And so they miss it. Again, the next question comes in verse 23. It's the same issue. Israel missed the point, but this time it's about keeping the Sabbath instead of fasting. Verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful? On the Sabbath. The Sabbath day was there as a day of rest so that people would stop and think about God and remember his goodness to them and remember his rescue. But the Pharisees have their eyes on the Sabbath day and its rules instead of on God. And this whole Sabbath issue continues on into chapter 3, verse 1. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. See, it's the Sabbath day. But these guys haven't come to the Sabbath, to the synagogue, to learn about God. They have come looking for something to use against Jesus. They are using the Sabbath day as ammunition against Jesus. They're working very hard on the Sabbath, aren't they? They're working hard to catch Jesus out, but they don't want Jesus to help anyone. But this time Jesus gets in first with his question. He gets angry. He's had enough of their questions. Verse 3, Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Which is good on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? Look at what the Pharisees do. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And so on the very Sabbath day that God gave Israel to remember his rescue, they plot how to kill the rescuer. That's the problem with their religion. It leads to pride. I've kept the rules. I'm better than other people. I don't need Jesus. How dare anyone else tell me otherwise? How dare anyone tell me that I'm not a good person? That's pride. It's inability to admit that we need God's help. That's a problem with the nation of Israel here. You can't be proud and a follower of Jesus because Jesus came for sinners. And that's what the Pharisees don't get. Because of their pride, they're offended by Jesus. They reject Jesus. And so 
Jesus will reject them. And that's what the second half of this section is about. Jesus is starting a new Israel. Finished with the old, time for a new. Verse 13 of chapter 3. Jesus went up onto a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Jesus goes up onto a mountain and he calls 12 apostles. This is very similar to the Old Testament, isn't it, where God's people, the nation of Israel, started with 12, 12 brothers, 12 tribes. The old nation has failed. They weren't ready. They didn't repent. Time for renovation of Israel is over. It's time to rebuild, bring in the bulldozer, level the old Israel away, start all over again, That's what's happening here. Jesus is starting a new Israel, beginning with the 12 apostles. And in fact, we saw a hint of this back in 2 verse 21 with those two riddles Jesus told. I skipped over them back then, but let's go back and have a look now. Chapter 2 verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. No one pours new wine into old old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Now, I don't know a lot about sewing or wineskins, but I know, can see what Jesus is saying here, is that the new is not compatible with the old. You might say today, it's no use installing Windows Vista on an old Pentium 1 computer. The computer and the software will be useless. They'll go so slow. What you've got to do is throw out the old computer and get a new one. Keep up with the times. Or how about, it's no use trying to play a DVD in a record player. It'll just scratch it with the needle and they'll both be ruined. It's time for something new. And what Jesus is saying is the Old Testament law is obsolete. Jesus is opening the way for forgiveness. It's a new way for anyone who wants it. The nation of Israel is like an old pair of ripped jeans. It's no use trying to repair them with new cloth. And fasting and keeping the Sabbath is like old wineskins. It's no use trying to fit Jesus into that system. Jesus is not meant to go alongside the Old Testament laws as if, you know, We're okay and we can do a little bit and then Jesus can make up for what we don't do. He's meant to replace them. But all this talk of the old being done away with has stirred up the religious heavies back in Jerusalem. They don't like it. And Jesus has created such a stir that the big guns from Jerusalem come all the way to Galilee to see what Jesus is up to. They listen to Jesus And this is their conclusion, chapter 3, verse 22. The big guns conclusion about Jesus, verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. See, Jesus is doing some, some pretty amazing things. There's no denying that. He has power. He's healing people. And so what do they come up with to explain it? Oh, it must be from the devil. This is the occult. Jesus is evil. It's a crazy idea. 
which Jesus points out to them in verse 23. So Jesus called them, calls the big guys, come here, fellas, and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. See, the very point, the very reason that Jesus has come is to do battle with the devil. That's what he's been doing. He's been driving out evil spirits. He's been healing demon-possessed people. And Jesus' point is Satan is not going to try and bring himself down. I'm not from the same house as Satan. I'm against him. To attribute the work of Jesus to the devil, it's a crazy idea. It's worse than crazy. It's unforgivable. Verse 28. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. I think Jesus here is referring back to Isaiah 63, verse 10, where the prophet Isaiah is talking about God rescuing his people and those very people he rescued grieve his Holy Spirit. Isaiah 63, um, 10, you might want to look it up later, but just listen as I read it. In his love and his mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all in days of old. This is talking about God rescuing um, the Israelites in the first exodus. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Israel here are making exactly the same mistake that they did in the first exodus where after God rescued them, they went and they worshipped false gods and they turned against him. That's how you grieve God. You ignore his rescue. You ignore Jesus. You ignore his rescuer. And that's exactly what's happening here. The Israelite leaders are rejecting Jesus. And if you reject God's rescue, he will reject you. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is not some strange sin that if you do it, you can't be forgiven. God will forgive you of anything if you come to him to be rescued. But if you reject Jesus, there's no rescue. You're rejecting the lifeboat. There's only one way to be saved. So it's not that God refuses to forgive people. It's that people are refusing to come to Jesus to be forgiven. And that's what's happening to the nation of Israel. They have rejected God. They have rejected his rescue plan. And so he will reject them. He's starting a new Israel. And the old one will be unforgiven. So the first le lesson in today's passage, I think, is really clear, isn't it? Do not think that religion can get you right with God. Do not think that being a good person can get you right with God. It can't. It doesn't matter what religious system that you try and use, whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Catholic or Presbyterian or whatever. If you are using some kind of religious system of going to church or reading your Bible or anything to make you right with God, you've got it wrong. 
any way of trying to impress God by what you do, all it will do is fill you with pride. And that'll stop you coming to Jesus. So you need to repent. You need to realize that you're not a good person. That's why Jesus came. Jesus forgives sinners. But there's a warning for followers of Jesus here too who have repented, isn't there? Because it seems that we have this default setting of going back to being religious, of trying to uh, think that we're good by doing things. You know, we might set up a good system at church and its aim is to reach people for Jesus and it's a good thing. But it doesn't take long before we start measuring ourselves by whether we're a part of it or how hard we work at it or it doesn't take long till we've actually forgot what we're doing it for and we just do it because we've always done it. Or I think that whole idea creeps in when our criteria for deciding whether or not DPC should start a new church is based around our comfort rather than whether it'll help more people find out about Jesus. And so we're scared to try anything new because we like the old way. Or we do things at church because we're worried about what other people will think of us. We want to look good to them. It's a performance. Or we get critical of other people at church. A sure sign that we think we're better than them. A sure sign of pride, criticising other people. It's so easy to do. It's a trap that I fall into. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church about what we've seen this morning. He's talking about the nation of Israel. He's talking about God's rescue of them. He's talking about their rejecting him. And this is the conclusion he writes to the Corinthian church. He says, These things happened on them, the nation of Israel, as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm... Be careful that you don't fall. In other words, it is a great temptation for us as Christians to think that we're doing okay. To be proud of what we've done. If you think you're standing firm, if you think you're doing okay, be very careful. Because the danger of thinking that you're okay is that it doesn't take long before you don't need Jesus. We need Jesus. And today's passage is about learning to be broken and humble so that we keep trusting in Jesus. God has started something new and we're part of it. And how exciting is it for me from the outside to watch early church coming up with new ideas like Life Matters dinners and taking risks for Jesus and trying new things for the gospel. That's great. Because it's not about being good. It's not about keeping rules. It's about Jesus saving sinners. God's starting something wonderfully new and we're part of it. Jesus saving sinners. That's something that you don't want to miss out on. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you have started something new. That you forgive us when we don't deserve it.
And thank you that through Jesus' death, he won for us forgiveness from you to everyone who believes in him. And Father, thank you that no matter what we've done, we can be forgiven if we come to Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that you would remove from us any pride that gets between us and you. Please remove from us any pride that makes us think that we're good or somehow we can earn your favour. Help us to rely only on Jesus. Help us to see ourselves as we look at the cross, to see ourselves as sinners who need your forgiveness and always to be trusting in that and never to move on from that. And as a church, help us to rejoice in new opportunities to share the gospel with people. Not looking back to the way that we've always done things, but looking forward and thinking of the best ways to be sharing Jesus with people. Thank you that we can be a part of something so exciting. Amen.